perish. Well, turn your Bible to Acts chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 16 all the way down through verse 34. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along with us on the overheads today. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not, actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. God, my trust and my hope is in you, Lord, in your strength and your ability God, I'm aware of my weakness, but Lord, thank you that you are creator, God. You are a God who is not distant from us. You're not distant from me. You're not distant this morning. You are ever-present here with us. And, and God, because of that, I can confidently pray and ask you to help me as I preach. Help all of us as we hear from you. 
God, thank you that our confidence is in that you desire to be with us. You are not far from us, God. God, thank you that you sent your son for the needy. God, thank you that all of us who are in need, you desire to meet our every need. So God, I pray that you would help us turn our eyes to you, that you would give us faith in you, trust in you this morning. God, no matter what distractions we've encountered, no matter what weaknesses we're aware of, Lord, no matter what things we have turned to, Lord, I pray we would turn away from those things and turn to you. Lord, would you be with us this morning, I pray. In your son's name, amen. Well, I want to share with you a couple different stories. In, in our passage, we see that Paul was provoked, and I thought it was appropriate that I would share with you some stories about how I was provoked. And I'm, I'm not talking about the kind of provoking that's not good. You know, the kind of provoking that when I was a kid, I, my older brother and sister, they used to pick on me all the time, and, and I'd like haul off and, and hit them. And then I'd go run to my parents, and I'd say, you know, they provoked me! You know, not that kind of provoking. That's, that's an excuse. That's a cop-out. But sometimes it's actually good that we're provoked, and it's very rare that it's good that we're provoked, but it at some times is okay that we're provoked. And remember one of those times, um, I was a fan of U2 growing up. I, I liked their music, and uh, they were one of my favorite bands, and so a few years ago, we got to go down to a U2 concert in Atlanta. It was cool. We got tickets. They were sold out, but a friend of ours got tickets for there, so we got to go down and watch the concert, and... Um, we got there, we, we had these lofty seats that were far away from everything, so we went down, we asked the ushers, can we move closer to be part, close of all the action? And so we were down near the floor, and it was, it was loud, and it was, the music was thumping, it was great, but I was bothered. I was really shocked that I was bothered. I, you know, I, I was going to hear some of my favorite songs, some good music, I liked it, and they're, they're talented musicians, and, and, but something was bothering me, and I couldn't figure it out for a while. Why am I bothered? And then I realized that it, it, was, it was provoking me when I was there that, that, you know, not everybody was just enjoying the music. Some people are actually worshiping the music. Some people weren't just going to see the band. Some people were kind of worshiping the band as if it was like the culmination of their life's dream to see them in concert, as if Bono was a god. And I remember just feeling really kind of sick. I didn't expect that. I I just thought I was going to hear some music, and, and yet I found myself in the midst of a bunch of worshipers and thought, this, this is not right. It's good to go to a concert. Concerts are fine, but the worship part of it was not right. And I remember being provoked and thinking, I, I enjoy the music. This is cool. This is great. But, but boy, this is sad because so many here are, are, are acting as if this is what life is all about. They're living for this, living for the moment, living as if this is the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction and gratification. And I realize how sad it is that so many of the people around me were trapped in idolatry, trapped in worship of false gods. And it kind of took away from the enjoyment of the music a little bit for me. Um, I remember being provoked afterwards and bothered, and I got to talk to some people afterwards and, and tell them about that and then I think of another time, recently, I guess a while back actually, but um, I remember going to another church and visiting, and don't worry, I'm not, I'm not visiting other churches on the side when Aaron preaches. I was here last week, it was a great message. Um, but I remember a while back, uh, I got a chance to go and, and hear another man preach in a, in a very conservative city, 
in a city that um, is, is known for their conservative views, and I got to go there, I got to participate, hear this, this wonderful sermon on the passion of Jesus Christ, on his, on his death and on his resurrection and what he'd done for us, and, and this, this wonderful, passionate exposition of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and then I remember afterwards being told to, you know, well, file out quietly, so we're going to be in contemplation. And I thought, well, this is, this is different stylistically, but that's okay. We can, we can still worship God just by being quiet and walking out. And then, but then I remember something else that, that kind of hit me that was a little strange, when I went out and went to talk to people, people didn't seem affected. They weren't passionate about the passion. They, they didn't seem like they cared very much. And when I wanted to get into conversations, it was just awkward. It was odd because um, people not only weren't passionate, they weren't joyful. And that was a reflection of the fact that if you've experienced the joy of, of being forgiven of your sins and knowing that Jesus has risen and he's at the right hand of God and he wants to help you and he is giving you strength for the Christian walk, boy, that's a truth that's meant to give you joy and passion. And I remember being struck by the fact that the people there seemed to be joyless. They seemed to be passionless. And I was really provoked. I couldn't figure out, why am I so bothered? What is wrong here? This, something just feels wrong. And I was provoked because the truth is meant to result in passion for God. And it, and it didn't. And I, I became to wonder, I wonder if somehow church has become an idol to some of these people as well. Now, in both those cases, I could be wrong. Maybe the people around me really weren't worshiping those things. But I, I think, I think I was observing correctly. You know, sometimes you have to observe closely to perceive idols because they're subtle. Paul, he's looking around him. He's in Athens. They, they're not as subtle in his day. Athens was a city that was full of idolatry. It was unsettling to him. It was provoking to him. His heart was stirred. He wanted to speak about it. He wanted to talk about this is not right. And he wasn't bothered because he was being selfish. He wasn't bothered because it was a different style or a different kind of culture because he didn't like Greeks. It wasn't bothered because of all those things. I wasn't bothered because I don't like you two. In fact, they're one of my favorite bands still. Um, I wasn't bothered because I don't like a different kind of liturgy. Um, there's all different kinds of liturgy that can glorify and honor God. And we want to embrace those differences. But what is bothersome is when we see people's affections not for God but for other things. Because really, God alone deserves the glory. God alone deserves praise. And, and Paul was motivated by that. And he was bothered for a good reason. It bothered him when he looked around and saw idolatry. And it's meant to bother us when we look around in our culture, no matter where it might be. Maybe it's the world around us, or maybe it's our work, or in church. Or maybe we see idolatry in our own hearts. I know I do, in my own heart. You see, we were made to worship God. We were made to call others to worship him too. And that's the main idea that we're going to look at from this passage in in Acts 17 is that we were made, we were created to worship God. And we were created not only to worship God, we were created to call others to worship God too. And anything less than that should never satisfy us. We should never be satisfied with anything less than worship of God. 
You know, the Westminster Confession says that man's chief end is to, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think what they're touching on is, is that we were created to, to, in, in, to glorify God, to worship God, and for that to be a joyful experience. And anything less than that should provoke us. You know, not only were we made to worship God, Luke gives us an example in Paul to demonstrate that we're to call other people to worship him too. When, when Paul saw that people were not worshiping God, he said, this isn't right. He was provoked and he wanted to call people to worship God, not because he was a legalist, but because he'd been set free. And so Paul, the once legalist now set free, he looks around and he sees these idols everywhere. And, and one of the first principles we're going to see from our passage is that we too, we can see idols everywhere. It's the first, first principle we're going to look at is that we can see idols everywhere. We can see idol worship all around us. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, Paul has, has been chased out of Berea. He, he left in a hurry. People from Thessalonica, the Jews there, were coming to persecute him, and they wanted to do him harm. And so the brothers, they took him, and it's this, it's this fast-paced scene. They took him, and they throw him in a boat, and, and he goes to Athens, and he leaves his buddies behind. He was going so quickly, and he gets there, and he says, hang on, I didn't, I didn't want to be here. I, 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 they're not with me. Can you go back and get them? So Paul, though, finds himself in an unexpected place. He's not planning to be in Athens. He hasn't, he hasn't prepared great sermon series for how do I reach out to people who don't know God but he's, he's in the city, and it says, as he's waiting, as he's waiting there in Athens, his spirit was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He, he wasn't struck by some of the things that you and I might be struck with as he looked around this this really hip, cool city of Athens at the time. It was probably the hippest, coolest, most intellectual city in the in the modern world of time, you know, whatever, whatever city you think is really hip or cool, if that's New York City for you, or for me, maybe Vancouver, British Columbia, or I don't know, Switzerland, or Paris, whatever you think of as a, as a great place to go, he, he's in this really urban, intellectual city that's, that's full of the arts, it's full of beauty, it's, it's, it's full of people that are very talented, and, and yet, now those aren't the things that strike him the most, you know, the buildings of Athens, they were unrivaled in the ancient world. The, 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 the great Pericles, he had, he had made Athens great. He had built the Areopagus. He had, he had founded the, the Parthenon. And Athens was renowned for its democracy and their statesmen, their orators, and their philosophers, their dramatists, and their poets, and their sculptors. What a cool place to be, right? Couldn't have Paul just kind of fit in and enjoyed everything? Yes, and it, it really wouldn't have been wrong. And yet something bothered him in the middle of all of this common grace that God had given. Athens was an impressive city still at that time, a center of culture and beauty and thought. But when Paul walked around, what he noticed most was the idols in the city. The word uses, that Luke uses, it carries the meaning of being smothered with idols. When he says the city is full of idols, they were, they were covered over in idols. And, and at one Roman satirist, actually, he visited a few years after Paul did, and he wrote about the city, and he says, you know, it's easier to find a god or a goddess than it is a human in the streets of Athens. Because they had, in, in most estimates, they had about 10,000 uh, people in the population of Athens at the time. And it was estimated there were 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. They were smothered over with idols. 
But you know, it's kind of funny in us our idea today, you think, well, we're so much more advanced as a culture than that. We don't have that kind of idolatry happening here. Give me a break. We don't have those statues. Nobody's bowing down. Nobody's worshiping them. We don't have those kinds of idols. And yet, I think today, we're no less smothered over with idols ourselves. You know, maybe you think that we can't relate. We're far too advanced. But like Paul, it just takes you opening up your eyes, observing, walking around, and looking and and seeing behind the good things and saying, well, wait a minute. What's this world living for? What are people around me living? What am I living for at times? You know, we've gotten more sophisticated about our idols. We don't erect statues on our lawn. You know, I don't have Zeus or Hermes perching out in my front driveway. But I do have idols at times that I erect. You just can't see them. You know, an idol is anything that's placed above God in our affections. So just ask yourself, what, what is above God in my affections at times? An idol is anything that occupies the place that God alone should occupy. An idol can be anything that we look to besides God for fulfillment, for safety, for security, for happiness, for peace, for joy, for contentment. And and these are good questions to ask yourself. What do I look to for joy? What do I look to for contentment? What do I look to for peace, for security, for happiness? What am I tempted to bow down and worship? What am I tempted to be most excited about? What am I tempted to be most fearful about? of being taken from me, maybe is another way to look at it. You think, maybe you think, I'm not excited about all those things, but, well, what if something is taken away from you? What are you fearful of being taken from you? Is it your health? Is it your family? Even our family, our children, our spouses can become idolatrous to us. If we look around, our idols for some might be parked in our garage, and we might live in them. Um, for others, food, or drink, or power, or pleasure, or sex, or self-gratification, or success, or money, or possessions, or, or entertainment, or recreation, religion, family, friends, work, status, recognition, maybe even seemingly good ideologies like the popular ideas today of tolerance and fairness that are either really neither tolerant nor truly fair. Those things can become idolatrous. And like Paul, if we open our eyes, we can see idols are everywhere. So what was Paul's reaction to those things? Was he complacent about it? Did he say, oh, well, I'm not going to bother with it. There's no way I can change any of those things. No, he actually, he wanted to do something about it. He was provoked to speak out. Why? Because the, the people were trapped in idolatry. It says in, in verse 16, his spirit was provoked and he, as he saw the city was trapped and it was full of idols. And I think that's, that's to be our response as well. The second principle we're going to look at is that we should be provoked by idol worship. Luke's not correcting Paul for being provoked. He's not not angry sinfully, but he's provoked. Something is wrong. And let's not become complacent in our own lives when, when we find that God is revealing a place where we become idolatrous. Now, if you're a Christian, if you place your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to live a life that's pleasing for him, you don't have to be condemned if you discover an idol. No, and actually, in fact, if, if God's making you aware of an idol right now, it's what a wonderful thing that is because it means he sets you free from that. You don't have to live enslaved to that any longer. But let's not grow accustomed to those things. Let's be provoked, not only in our own lives, but let's be provoked if we look at the culture around us because if we look and see the city is full of idolatry, 
Why did that bother Paul? It bothered Paul because it meant that people were not giving worship to God, but they're worshiping themselves and these other things that can never truly satisfy. And God alone deserves the glory, but not only that, they're robbing God of the glory he was due as their creator, but they're also turning to things that can never, never satisfy. So we should be provoked by idol worship. Paul, that, the word about being provoked, it was this, this sense of revulsion and he was experiencing this inward horror at the idols he saw and he was motivated to speak out and to try to point people to the one true God. So look in verse 17, it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Idol worship should be spoken about. Not because we're trying to condemn people, because we want to set people free in Jesus. And, and this idolatry, this being provoked by idolatry, it should provoke us to speak of the freedom from idols that can be found in Jesus. It can speak of, of the one true God who alone, alone belongs all worship and all praise. And so that's clearly what Paul shared and it's clearly what we should share as well. So we're gonna look at the third principle from Paul's example in verse 18 is that we should share the hope of Jesus with idolaters. It's meant to provoke us. We can look around and see idols. We need to actually sometimes attune our eyes to see them because we become complacent to idolatry. So we need to look around, observe, and see the city's full of idols and our hearts as well can be tempted that way, but we also need to see that we're provoked by them, so we want to set our own idolatry aside, but so we can help people be set free and encounter Jesus Christ, and so we share the hope of Jesus with idolaters. Verse 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What was Paul preaching when he encountered idolatry? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Why was he doing that? Because he knew that the only way to be set free from idolatry was to encounter the risen Lord. He knew that, that only as people saw who Jesus is and only as they put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, and, and only as they repented and turned to him, that, that only he could make them alive and, and set them free from being chained to these deadly idols. You know, when you have a piece of, of rotten fruit in, in a bag of other fruit, it, it makes all the other fruit go bad very quickly, and so you remove that fruit. And, and, and Paul was trying to turn them away from the rottenness of idolatry so that they might be set free and not be corrupted by idolatry anymore. You know, I, I was thinking about, it's as if you had a remote POW camp who didn't know that the war was over, and they were still living in captivity. Their guards had left because... The force had been defeated. The enemies were gone, and yet they were still living in captivity in this internment camp and, and preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection is like going into that camp and saying, listen, the enemy has no power over you anymore. He, he can't hold you here. You're submitting yourself on your own. You don't even know it. You're blind. You've been set free come and I'll show you the man who set you free. And that's our motivation for sharing the hope of Jesus with idolaters. And, 
In Romans 6, it tells us, in verse 16, it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's the effect of presenting yourself as a Christian to an idol that cannot satisfy. You're presenting yourselves again as a slave, and you become a slave. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to set you free. It says in in verse 17 of of Romans 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. We're we're called to share the hope of Jesus with idolaters and and Luke gives us that model in Paul and it shows us how Paul was, was broad in his methodology as he was preaching this good news. And so it tells us that Paul didn't just go to the synagogues. He went to the synagogues like he normally did, but then he also did something different too. He went out into the marketplace and whoever he, he, could, he could talk to, whoever would converse with him, he shared the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The good news that Jesus came to take our place, to live a sinless life that we could never live. He came to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins, for disobeying our creator and for worshiping false idols, that Jesus came and he was resurrected as proof that his sacrificial death was acceptable to God in our place. And so Paul was preaching that message of Jesus and the resurrection, but it was really foreign to the Greeks. They actually thought he was teaching false divinities, and, and some think that maybe they, they thought he was teaching about this Jesus, Jesus, and Anastasius, this resurrection, as if there was the God of Jesus and there was this God of resurrection. Because the Greeks didn't believe that no, no matter what school of thought was current at the time, neither Epicureans nor the Stoics, they didn't believe that the body would ever be resurrected again. It was a foreign idea to them. It was confusing to them. It was foreign and strange. And so Luke tells us that some of them thought that, that Paul was a babbler. Um, the, the word there actually it speaks of seed picker is what that word means. And it's, it's like a bird that goes around picking up seeds and then spits them out and doesn't really know what they're, they're doing, doesn't really know what those seeds are, what they mean. And so Paul's like, he's just, they're saying he's just picking up these ideas and he's just spitting them out like he really doesn't know what he's talking about. So they're condescending. Talking about things you knew nothing about, but the reality is they knew nothing about the truth. And the message they most needed to hear was about Jesus and the resurrection because it's the only message of hope. Because Jesus died for our sins and if we trust in him, we won't be punished for them. Because Jesus has been resurrected and is alive, we can have hope that he's able to deliver us from idolatry. And that's a foreign message to the world around us today too, isn't it? It's dismissed by many as either a fairy tale or just a, a quaint old school notion that doesn't relate. Or maybe some people think of us as simple-minded. You know, the gospel was foolishness to the Greeks and it's foolishness to many around us today as well. But that didn't stop Paul. You know, he said the gospel is is foolishness to the Greeks, but, but he said, but it's the power of God for salvation. And so as we encounter people who think that we're fools for believing the gospel, we should have hope that, no, the gospel, this good news, it's the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. And so that should give us hope to proclaim it. And so the fourth principle we see in Paul's life is that we should speak about God engagingly and boldly. We should speak about God engagingly and boldly. 
Notice Paul doesn't go and slap them upside the head. He's not going and insulting them. Now, he does give them truth that ultimately does offend some, but it's the message of the gospel, and he's not meant to be an offense on his own. And so he encounters Greeks of all walks of life and the philosophers of the day, and it says that um, when he was in the marketplace, it didn't say that he brought them scriptures, although he was, I'm sure, teaching about Jesus and the resurrection from scriptures. It says he reasoned with them. He appealed to what they knew, he appealed to ideas that they would have understood, and he, he, he enabled them to understand who Jesus is in the resurrection as he, he, he taught them about areas that they understood and related them back to Jesus. He spoke with the Epicureans. They believed that God was distant, and everything happened by chance. They believed that there was no life after death and no judgment, and they believed that, that all of life should be just the avoidance of pain, the pursuit and enjoyment, the pleasure and so they emphasized both escape from pain and pleasure. And I, I think of how really mo- much of our culture and society around us is, is very much like Epicureans. Everything's by chance. Everything's just happenstance. There's no, there's no divine creator. There's, there's no God overall. It's a very common idea. The idea that you know, science has disproven God, that God is dead, and that, in fact, we're all just here by random chance. It was the kind of people that Paul encountered. It's the kind of people we encounter today as well. And yet, they needed the good news to be spoken to them engagingly and boldly. Well, it says he also encountered the, the philosophies of the Stoics. And the, the Stoics were the other extreme, really, and we encountered this kind of philosophy in our culture today, too. The Stoics, um, they believed that, yes, there was um, something divine, but it's really in all of creation and in all of us. And there was really a pantheistic idea. It was, it was very similar to Hinduism and Buddhism today. And they believe that God is in everything. The world is, is governed by fate. And so um, what we have to do is, is live in alignment with nature and live by reason and accept the pain and just try to be self-sufficient and not get too worked up about anything, not allow our emotion to control us. And that was how they dealt with life. And so Paul encounters both of these kinds of philosophies in the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he reasons with them about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they say, well, you know, because they're really tantalized by all these new ideas and, and they, they, they were, the, you know, they, they, they kind of like the equivalent of today, the church, what's happening now, and they wanted to hear all these new fancy ideas. And so they said, hey, come, we're going to take you to the Areopagus and we want you to go before the council because the council in the Areopagus, they would have been in charge of what was taught in the city and whether or not they, they had their stamp of approval. And so they said, come with us. We want them to hear. And so they took Paul along with them. Verse 19.20 tells us that because of what Paul was speaking, they go to the Areopagus and they say, explain to the Areopagus what you're talking about. And if you think about who the Areopagus were, they were like the intellectual, the, the most elite of that day. There's, there's really no equivalent of the Areopagus today, but if there were, it, maybe it would be the, the intellectual elite from someplace like Oxford or Harvard or Yale or Furman for all the people here, I guess, because um, I heard that Furman's the Harvard of the South. I didn't hear that until I came here. But anyway, um, it's, it's like the intellectual elite. But Paul wasn't intimidated. Why? It's not because he was an intellectual giant, although he was. He had the same hope, the same faith, the same confidence that we have. You see, it's the gospel that was the power of God for salvation. 
And so that was the hope that he challenged the intellectual elite of his day. He challenged people in the marketplace. And that's what he spoke about was engagingly and boldly declaring who God is. Verses 22 and 23, we can, we can see what is Paul doing? How does he proclaim the gospel engagingly? What kind of model is Luke showing us here for, for us today, for, for every believer since then? Why is Luke giving us this? Well, he's, he's giving us to show us that Paul was, was doing this in a way that was engaging. He wasn't just reasoning with him, which was engaging the Stoics and the Epicureans, but notice something else that he's doing. Verse 22 and 23 this man who he was provoked by idols, what does he appeal to? He appeals to an idol. Why? Because they could identify with that. So he was looking for connections in their culture and their understanding to make those connections and then use those connections to point them to who the true God is. They were living for other gods. And Paul says, you know, you're living for those other things, looking for them satisfied. But let me show you what really satisfies. Let me point you to the one who really satisfies. You think you're going to be fulfilled by success or by money or power or by fame or by sex or whatever. Or by having the perfect family. And Paul says, no, you know, I understand that desire. That's a God-given desire to want to have fulfillment. But let me show you who truly fulfills. And so Paul, he says, you know, you have this, he says, men of Athens in verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's complimenting him. He says, I see you're really religious. He's not insulting him. He's, he's throwing him a bone. He says, I see you're very religious. You know, you've got 30,000 idols here. He didn't say that, but that would have been me. He says, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. He says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So Paul says, you, you know, you, you've, you've erected all these idols and just to make sure that you, you pacify any God who might be angry with you, you've got this other God that's an unknown God. But let me tell you about all these other gods. You know, those aren't the real gods. But let me tell you that uh, unknown God, let me tell you who that really is. And so he makes a connection for them in, in a way that they can understand. And, and we need to look today for, for ways we can connect with people. And understand, okay, what's motivating the people around me? What's motivating people in my workplace? What's motivating my friends, my family? Let me get into the head so I can understand them. Not to be manipulative, but so I can say, you know what? Because I know they're made in the image of God, I know that somewhere they're going to have a God-given desire that's just misplaced. They're going to have a desire for satisfaction, fulfillment, or for glory, but it's not, not their own. It's just misplaced. So let me, see. let me see what's making them tick so I can say, you know what? Let me show you that that's, you're just looking in the wrong place for that. Let me show you God, our creator, who really satisfies. And let's do that engagingly and boldly. So Paul redirects something that was interesting to them and he, and he builds this bridge with them and then very gently he confronts them. And I think it's a lesson for us today is that sometimes we can think that um, we need to be, we need to be ag- aggressive in a negative sense. We need to be confrontational in the rude or mean sense. No, we need to be bold. Let's do that with gentleness and respect. Give a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect, the scripture says. And that's what we see Paul doing here as well. He's, he's really setting up a classroom for all Christians since then of how to engage with, with the culture around us, to make those connections and to do that boldly with confidence in Christ. Not confidence on our message, but confidence in the fact that the gospel really is the power of God to set people free. 
So Paul wasn't angry, he wasn't abusive, he didn't call them names, but he did give them truth gently. He confronts their ignorance. He says, what you worship as unknown, the word there actually means what you worship ignorantly. He confronts their ignorance. What you're worshiping ignorantly, let me help you with. Let me fill you in on what was unknown to you. Let me, let me show you what you don't know. I want to show you that what you're looking for, that you're not certain, let me show you what that really is, who that really is. And so he engages people in all these different kinds of settings in church. He's engaging them on the street. He's engaging the intellectual elite. You know, I was thinking in our day, we, we need that, don't we? We need to engage with people wherever we find them in all different styles and means and methods. Engage with people in the church. That's why we, we have church here on Sunday mornings. It's for the believer and for the unbeliever as well as we proclaim the gospel truth. And if you'll notice, um, we, we are a gospel-centered church because we live by the, the good news of Jesus Christ every day, but we also want to proclaim the gospel because we don't assume that everybody here is a believer. Um, I, I grew up in the church and I knew all the right things to say and I don't think I really knew God at all. And so we need to proclaim God in, in the church. We need to proclaim God in the marketplace. We need construction workers. We need painters. We need lawyers and doctors and Christian thinkers and writers and journalists. And we need poets and actors and producers and artists and directors and all kinds of people to communicate the good news about Jesus engagingly and boldly. Now, we use different means and methods and we meet people where they're at. Now, at the same time, we need to be cautious that we, we, don't, we don't hold back the truth either, though. We want to engage in a way that people can understand. We want to do that boldly, too. And so the, the fifth principle we're going to see here is that we should speak about God fully. What does Paul do? When he engages them, he engages them lovingly, gently. He engages them boldly. But he, he tells them about who God is because he assumes they don't really know. If we just tell people you need to repent and turn to Jesus, that if a person doesn't know who God is, that's not enough. It's, it's like telling somebody who's on this, what looks like this great, wide, paved road going through this beautiful valley, and you're telling them, hey, you're stopping in the middle of the road and you're saying, by the way, you need to go down this, this really narrow gravel road because that's the way to go. That's the way to life. And they're like, what are you, nuts? You need, to, you need to explain, you know, let me stop you for a second because what you don't understand is this road you're on, it leads somewhere and it leads to a chasm and the bridge is out. And you're headed to death. And let me, let me tell you something else is that um, I know the, the man who built this road and who built everything. And so we need to introduce people to who God is. And that's what Paul does. He doesn't make assumptions here. He goes back to the very basics. Look in verse 24 to 29. What does he do? He educates them about who God is in a very full way. And, and, the, and it's, a, it's a principle we need to see is that we need to show people who God is. It probably didn't take Paul very long to do so. Oh, what we have here is, is, a, is an outline, really, that Luke was kind of jotting down for us, for our example, to see an outline of some of the key things we want to communicate with people who don't know God. Now, this is not saying in every time, in every setting, in every occasion, but let it be our goal that we don't just let people see our good works alone, but we point them engagingly and boldly 
to God and who he is and the, and the hope that he's provided. And so he begins in verse 24. Look down in your Bibles. He says, who does he tell them that God is? He says, God, this unknown God, let me tell you, this is God the creator. God's the creator. Why is that important to know? It's important to know that because if you don't know that God is creator, then you don't believe that you're responsible to him. Yet if we know and see that God is our creator, that he is the one who gave all of mankind life and breath and everything, that we are responsible to him. He's our designer. He is the one who said how we should live. And yet we've mucked it up. We live in a, we lived in our own way. We lived for what we think can satisfy. And God says, no, I'm your creator. People need to know that God made the world and everything in it. You see, the, the Epicureans, they believe that everything was happening by random chance. It's very familiar to us today, isn't it? You need to boldly say, you know what? No matter how you believe that's happened, God is the one who's ordaining all of that. God is the creator. Not, everything has not happened by random chance. No, you see, there is an unmoved mover, to use a, a platonic thought, and that unmoved mover, he is, he is actually God. There has to be a cause of all things. You know, matter and energy didn't just come to exist on their own. How did gases come to be? It doesn't take much to understand that there actually has to be something that was the cause of everything. You could say this unknown something that you're saying is unknown to you. Let me point you to who that is. That's the God of the universe who created all things. The Stoics, they believed that God is in everything. People today have a very stoical approach as well. They think they want to be one with nature and commune, and that's the way. If I can just get my, you know, the energies aligned and everything right, then I'll be okay. And you say, no, let me show you what you, you need to know. You need to see that it's not living to be one with nature. You li- we, we've been called to be one with God. And the reason why you're feeling this disruption, like something is wrong, is because we were made to commune with God. He was meant to be our life. He was meant to be the source of all joy and fulfillment. And yet, sin, it separated us from God and made us so that that communion is broken. And so when you're looking for communion and all these other things, you're going to find it all satisfy. But let me tell you, God, our creator, he's the one who satisfies. And it says that originally he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and he had a relationship with them and that he's provided a way through Jesus that we can be restored back to that relationship with him. And you know what? No matter what path you seek, all religions don't lead to God. But God has shown us that there is one way to him and that's a gracious and merciful and kind thing. It's not judgmental. Far from it, it is freedom. And so they needed to know that the God is the Lord or ruler over heaven and earth. That things don't just happen according to chance. And Paul is telling them that God isn't in everything and everything isn't part of God. But he's actively ruling. He's involved. He's over everything. It says, in him we live and move and and have our being. And then he's saying it would be silly to think that, you know, if, if God is the creator and we're his creatures, it would be silly to think that somehow 
these things we create, these systems we set up that man has set up, this, these false places of confidence and hope that we have, these, these things that we turn to, these idols, no matter what they might be, it would be silly to put any hope and trust in them because they're just a product of us. And, and, and really, our hope is not in us, but it's in the Creator. And so when we look to hope in something we've created, that's, that's ridiculous because we're making things that we create God. It's turning things on their head instead of looking to God who created us. And then he shows that he's not distant. He's a personal Lord of everything. Verse 25, if you look down your Bible, it tells us that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything we can give him either. And why is that good news? It's good news because, you know what, one of the temptations that all of us face is to try to be God on our own, to try to, to, to pull ourselves up on our own bootstraps, to put confidence and hope in our own abilities. And the reality is that we all are in need. We all fail. We all fumble and stumble and fall. And so it's good news that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need things that we can give to him. It's good news because God sent his son to give everything that we need. He came to to give his son to deliver all of us who are in need so that he can meet our every need. Jesus didn't come to fulfill his own needs. He came because we needed him. And he came to meet our every need. And so we need to speak about God fully so that people see their need for God. They can see that God's our creator. We have a responsibility to him. We've, our sin has separated us from him. Trying to go our own way, trying to be like God has actually gotten us into trouble. And now we face judgment and wrath because of that. We don't understand the bad news before you, the, the good news is really good. You need to know that your life is headed towards this chasm that's hopeless in order to understand that this narrow path that might seem rough that God's calling us to, it truly delivers life to us. And Paul, he quotes from one of their own philosophers and he says that God himself gives life and breath and everything. And then we see in verse 26 to 28, he's, he's telling them really that God rules over the nations. He's giving them a full-orbed gospel. God's our creator. God's actively involved. He's ruling over everything. He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. He rules over the nations. And and look in in verse 26, if you will. It says, look down with somebody if you don't have it, by the way. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then he says, why? That they should seek God. And hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. And he gives them hope. He says, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. God made all the nations, he's saying, from one man, from Adam. God made every ethnic group and every kind of person. And, and by the way, we need to proclaim that good news too, especially in our day and age. And over the last few months, we've seen all these, these ethnic clashes these people call them racial rights. And I hesitate to say race because the reality is we're all part of one human race through Adam. And, and, and it says, the truth is, is that he says he's made of one man all kinds of ethnicities, all ethnos, all nations. To live on the face of the earth and God has, has made it these, this way. He's ordained these things. He's ordained the boundaries of nations. 
He's made nations very different. He's made the nations to rise and fall and determine the boundaries. Why? So that people would see that their hope's not in nations, their hope's not in ethnicities, their hope is in God. So that people would look and say, I, this isn't fulfilling. This, this isn't, something's missing here. It's just so that perchance they might feel their way towards him. The picture we have here is like a, it's like a blind man searching a vast room for their guide. But the problem is the hope of finding God for that blind man is thwarted by sin. And the rest of scripture tells us that people are alienated from God and because of this they search for God but on our own we're blind. We're unable to find God even though it says yet he is not far from us. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever would hear my voice, listen to me and open up the door, I will come into him and I will, I will be with him and I will eat with him. I'll have fellowship with him. And Paul quotes one of their own poets. He says, for in, for in him we live and move and have our being. As Paul's saying, he's saying God's near to us in, in our very life and in, in everything that we do, it's sustained by God. People need to know that. And Paul quotes, he builds some more bridges. Verse 28 and 29, look down your Bible, it says, for we are indeed his offspring. That's quoting another, another poet of theirs, saying that you know, the spark of God is in everyone because God was the creator, and so this, this remnant of God, we're his offspring, and, and there's some truth in that. Paul's saying we are his offspring. We're not his offspring in the sense of we're, we're his adopted children, because sin has separated us from God, but God's our creator, and so, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What's he doing? He's using their own logic against them. He's saying if we're God's offspring, the product of his creation, then they shouldn't think that God, the divine being they don't know, is relocated to some feeble imitation, something that's made by man. So the logic goes that since man was made by God, and since we're thinking individuals, then God is at least a living, thinking individual who is greater than us. That's what he's saying. So he surely can't be an idol of gold or silver or stone or anything else we make up or imagine. People need to know that. People then need to know that. People today do. And so he explains, you know, so, so many people today think that the gospel is foolish and weak, and it's not because we're doing a good job telling them the gospel, it's because what they're hearing is a partial gospel. It's not, it's not the good news. They're also hearing something that doesn't make any sense of their worldview. And yet what we see Paul showing us here is an integrated approach. He's, he's making sense of their worldview for them. He's explaining how it all fits together. We, we, you know, the, the gospel is, is not reason, but, but God helps us use reason to show who he is. Christianity is at least not anti-intellectual. And I would posit it actually is very intellectual. It makes the best sense. And so he's saying it's absurd if you make idols and worship anything less than God himself. And he gives them this integrated worldview that's full and it's robust and makes sense of things and, and we need to preach the doctrines of God and creation and judgment if people are to make sense of the message of the cross and salvation through him. And ultimately, really, it's God's glory that's meant to provoke us and motivate us. 
But we aren't to leave people there. And Paul doesn't leave people there either. And the last principle we're going to look at is that we're called to respond. Look in verse 30 and 31. What does Paul do? What does he say to them? Look down your Bible. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's not shy away from calling to respond. It says, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It's a fixed thing. It's going to happen. God will judge the world one day. Everyone must repent because that judgment is coming. It says, and he's given assurance to all that this man is the appointed judge. It says, by, by, he's given us assurance by all by raising him from the dead. He's saying, you know, before God was, was patient with the ignorance of the nations and their idolatry, but now that he's sent his son, Jesus, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul's coming full circle. He used the same word he used earlier. He says, you know this God who is unknown to you, who you're ignorant of? Let me tell you who that is. And now, now you're no longer ignorant. So God's not overlooking your ignorance anymore. So now you're called to repent, to respond He saw the idols, he was grieved. He calls them to repent because in Jesus Christ, why Why has he called them to repent? Because God, he says, commands everyone to turn away from their idols, to turn away from their ignorance, to turn from looking to anything or anybody else to satisfy or fulfill and to turn to trust in Jesus. Why? Because there is hope in Jesus. Because Jesus came to set us free from enslavement to sin and idolatry. And so Paul calls them and all people everywhere, he calls them to turn from trusting in themselves. He calls today to us through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, to turn from living for ourselves, to to turn from bowing down to any idol. Maybe that's an idol of control. Maybe it's an idol of respect. Maybe it's an idol of food or drink. Maybe you're enslaved to alcoholism. Maybe you are addicted to drugs. Jesus came to set you free. Maybe you're addicted to pornography and sex. Maybe you are seeking after power or success or money or possessions. Maybe you're seeking after the perfect spouse. So you're angry all the time because it never is gonna happen. Maybe you're looking to entertainment to kind of fulfill, you know, I was convicted of this the other day. I was thinking, you know, so often when I'm, when I'm, when I'm tired, where do I look? I don't look to God I, for strength and fulfillment. I just want to check out and be entertained. And that's not necessarily bad, but it can reveal what for me is at times an idol. An idol of ease, an idol of entertainment and recreation. You know, if I, I think I shared a few weeks back, if, if my day off doesn't go perfectly, I get ticked off. <laughs> You know, an idol of family or friends or work or status or recognition or exercise or whatever it might be for you. Everyone is being called to turn from worshiping the creation and maybe even worshiping God's creatures to worship God himself. Everybody's called to turn from lesser creatures and creations that will never satisfy to God alone who truly does satisfy. And then Paul, he says, repent because God the creator, he'll rightly and justly judge the world one day. 
And we can be sure that Jesus, this appointed judge, he's going to judge the world because God proved who Jesus was by resurrecting him from the dead. That after Jesus paid the punishment and penalty for your and my sins, after he bore all of God's wrath for us as their creation, turning away from God and rejecting him, Jesus took all that punishment. God proved that 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 sacrifice was acceptable by resurrecting him, proved that forever our hope is in him and secure in him by resurrecting Jesus from the dead. Now we can trust in Jesus because he's risen. The Athenians, they had acknowledged in their ascription to the unknown God that they were ignorant, but Paul says, you, you, you don't need to be ignorant anymore. You don't need to be stuck there anymore. And he gives them that dual motivation of, of freedom from idolatry and and God's judgment as well. And it, it tells us in the end, the very last versions, that you know, Paul experienced the response there. He says, um, you know, some asked questions, some sneered or mocked him, some rejected him, and others, maybe they kind of were just blowing him off because Paul never came back. So I, I guess that was the case. He goes, we'll listen to you later on this. So Paul goes away. But here's the good news. Some responded. Some responded. You're going to have that experience as well. Actually, this really is hope-giving for me because I know that so many times when I share the reason for the hope that lies within me, it doesn't result like I want it to, but I realize I can trust God for the results. Some people will mock. Some people will jeer. Some people will reject. Some people might ask questions. Some people might be dismissive. But you know what? God will make some alive. And I'm provoked by that because I want others to worship God too and to give him the glory that he alone deserves. So may we this morning worship God by living for him, by speaking for him, by engaging with the world around us boldly and proclaiming this this full good news and let's trust him in the response. Let's go ahead and stand and get the band come up.